This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 1108, we're talking about the Baltruva. The Baltruva is someone who had a breakdown before he has the breakthrough, who misbehaved, who acted up, and did not behave appropriately, did not speak or act or think appropriately, which creates a scar and does damage to your soul and inflicts a scar on the whole universe. We are chapter 11. This is not chapter 11. We're not going bankrupt. We're <laughs> getting out of bankruptcy. <laughs> Everything that we do, the same concept. Yeah, it's true, same concept. You have to wipe out your debts and you can start all over again. <laughs> Just like you have a way to wipe out your financial debts, you also have a way to wipe out your spiritual debts. And that's through teshuva. Teshuva, there's, and then he explains there's two levels of teshuva. There's a lower level of teshuva, which is a brokenness of the heart, a brokenness of the spirit. Because when a person is so arrogant and self-centered and complacent, there can be no opening. There's no opening of the heart and there's no opening to change. And so the first thing is a person has to go through a breaking of the heart. Like in order for a seed to grow, first you've got to plow the field. The earth has a potential things to grow, but the earth is not receptive. You have to make the earth receptive. You have to crush it and grind it and plow it. And then you make the earth receptive. Then when you plant a seed, something can grow. Everything in the world is a metaphor. Same thing as spiritually speaking. If you want something to take root, something spiritual to take root, spirituality to take root within our psyche, within our being, within our personality, if it's unplowed ground, then it, all we have is earthiness. All you can get is mud. Nothing can grow there. There's a lot of mud, a lot of dirt. But you have to prepare. And how do you prepare? By breaking. You have, to, you have to plow the earth. You have to crush it. You have to grind it. You have to plow it. So too with your heart. As the great Hasidic Rebbe, Rabbi Shor Ruzhna said, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. When your heart is closed and shut down, when you're so proud of yourself and you're so complacent, and spiritually complacent and instead of being troubled or broken-hearted or feeling inadequate feeling something is missing and and therefore you begin to seek and to search and you're hungry you know you can have the best food in the world but if there's no hunger there's no appetite it doesn't do anything so unless a person has a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst, that you have a need, and every word is like, is like a person who's in the desert and parched, and every drop of water is so precious, 
to why the Torah is compared to water. Water is tasteless, unless you're thirsty. <laughs> if you're lost in the desert, there's nothing in the world that tastes better than a refreshing drop and drink of water, cup of water. The Torah is the same way. Spirituality, you have to be hungry. If you're hungry, then there's nothing tasty. But if you're, you have no hunger, you're satisfied with yourself. And usually, it's only the person who's coarse and crass that doesn't recognize how coarse and crass he is. It's only when a person elevates himself and changes that you look back and you realize how coarse and crass I was. How impossible. What an ugly personality and characteristic traits I had. What a turn off to anyone. So selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. With this exaggerated sense of self, exaggerated sense of ego, an unhealthy sense of ego. So the first step is a broken heart. If a person doesn't have a broken heart, you can't even start. You can't even go past first base. That's the lower level of teshuva. It's only when a person has a broken heart. And how do you have a broken heart? How can you achieve a broken heart? He explained in the, la- in the chapter, last chapter, chapter 10. If you can do is a little soul search. When a person has the ability and sits down and does a little honest soul searching, we call honest feedback to yourself, look at yourself honestly and objectively. Overcome your fears of shining a flashlight on your own life and look at yourself honestly. The way someone else would look at you. Because we look at other people we are brutally honest. It's only with ourselves that we're dishonest. But if we look at others, we are completely honest. Because we have no reason to lie. There's no twist. There's no, it's only when it comes to ourselves that suddenly we rationalize and we excuse and we twist and we turn. And we get such a distorted picture of reality, we don't even know what reality looks like. Up becomes down, down becomes up. But if you want to do a little honest soul search, look at yourself the way someone else looks at you. Honestly, no ego. Just MS, truth. How do I look? How does it appear to someone else? My behavior. Do I have anything to hide? Am I ashamed of anything that I'm doing? How would I like if someone else behaved that way? What would be my honest reaction to someone else who was doing the exact same thing that I am doing? A little honesty. It's a lost currency in today's society. We don't even know what the word means. It's not even a, it's not even a value that's even, um, that's even aspired to. But this used to be the bread and butter of any human being, of any spiritual human being. You have to take time and you have to do a little honest soul search. And just creating that space, stepping back from yourself, and creating that space and being able to look at yourself honestly already breaks your heart. In a healthy way, in a positive way, it breaks your heart, it plows your field, and then suddenly things could start stirring, and things could start moving, and things could start growing inside. But other than that, you have a Sahara Desert, a spiritual Sahara Desert, nothing can take root, nothing can grow. 
Instead, everyone is so proud of themselves. For thousands of years, people were working and not being so proud of themselves, trying to change, to improve, feeling restless, feeling inadequate, feeling something is not right. I have to grow, I have to improve, I have to change. And today is the exact opposite. Everyone, every other person, everyone is parading and proud of themselves. What are you so proud of? Are you living like a chaza? I mean, what's it to be proud of, exactly? What's, it, it's so contrary to the human spirit, it, it deadens the human spirit. It's a dead end. You're rendering yourself into a spiritual Sahara desert. You don't even have the potential to change and to grow and to move. So the first step of any spiritual life there has to be tshuva. Tshuva tato, the lower level of tshuva is a break, a brokenness of the heart. Brokenness of the spirit. And you know, it, 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 that strengthens us and we feel rejuvenated. After a broken heart, you feel strength. Because firstly, what you're saying is you're taking charge of yourself. You're taking charge of your life. So no matter how bad things are, the moment you take responsibility and you're taking charge, you're doing something about it. Even just looking honestly at yourself and assessing just how bad things are. Just, just knowing it and taking responsibility and then taking a baby step forward. You're already light years ahead of the, of the way you were before. It gives you a, a, a confidence that I can change, I can grow. No matter how bad things are, it's okay. It'll be good. Is hope. So just the act of taking responsibility, just like financially, no matter how bad things are, the road to recovery financially is first you got to be honest with yourself. Most people who are in financial tough situations just live in a fog. They just they're just too afraid to face honestly where they're at, how much they owe. You know, you better be seated when you're doing it. Sometimes it's double the amount you think you do. You estimate in your fog, in your vague fogginess, because you don't want to confront reality. But just confronting reality is also refreshing. Just knowing where you're at. Okay, now I can start. I can start paying down a dollar. I can start somewhere. But when a person lives in this fog, in this nebulous fog, then, then, then you, just, you just keep on sinking. You, don't, you can't even begin to get out of your situation, to change. So any change, so too spiritual. A person is spiritually bankrupt. A person is spiritually empty inside, spiritually dead. First you have to confront the situation. Take responsibility, take charge. And that's such a relief. Because you're not helpless. You're no longer a victim. I can take charge, I can change. No matter how bad things are. I can change, I can grow, I can improve. The thousand, the thousand mile journey starts with one step. I took that step today. But just by taking an accounting, a spiritual accounting, a soul searching, where I'm at, and assessing myself honestly, creating that space, stepping back, shining a flashlight, overcoming my fears instead of living in this vague, nebulous reality, but living a life and taking charge of my life and living a little honest life. A little honesty, a little clarity, and a little honesty. That alone is encouraging, is the first step forward. So that's the lower level of Teshuvah. And this is what the Mishnah says that before a person prays, prayer itself is the higher level of Teshuvah. The higher level of Teshuvah is 
that even after a person has already dealt with all the negativity, and now your life is filled with positive, but now you have a deeper problem. What's your deeper problem? The deeper problem is that the soul suffers from existential angst. The fact that there's an I, that there's an ego, there's a separation between me and God. So no matter how positive my life is, but that separation, that ego, is already a cause for suffering. Because the soul, before the soul entered into this world, before the soul, before we were born, and the soul journeyed into the body, into the physical material world, the soul was part of Hashem, a piece of Hashem, a piece of God. And there it was inseparable. The soul, as the Torah says, God blew into man's nostrils. So the breath left God, so to speak, and entered into the nostrils. God's breath is our soul. But then there's the breath before God blew the, that breath, when the breath was still inseparable and one, absolutely unified within God. And that's what the soul yearns for. The soul yearns to be absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. So the moment there's a separation, I haven't done anything wrong. As a matter of fact, I'm doing everything that's right. My behavior is right, and my thought is right, and my speech is right. But there's an ego, there's a separation, there's a disconnect. And the soul is yearning to connect. How does the soul connect? It's through studying Torah and through prayer. So that's the level of prayer. Prayer is the higher level of teshuvah, when the soul returns to God. Like on Shabbat, the Sabbath. Shabbos, the Hebrew word for Shabbat means to return. Tashev, if you turn the letters around, Shabbos is a day of connection. When the soul is elevated, when the whole world is elevated, when the soul reconnects to its source and reconnects with Hashem. And that's why Shabbos is a day of rest. What do you mean a day of rest? How much work is it to, to, to switch on the light? A day of rest means we give our ego a rest. Now that's a day of rest. Six days a week, we're the rainmakers and we're the movers and the shakers and the machers and the doers and we're creating and we're running. Come Shabbos, give your ego a rest. Hashem runs this world. And that's the, that's the, the theme of Shabbos. Teshuvah, the higher level of teshuvah, you, you overcome your ego. You put your ego to rest. And you could reconnect to Hashem. And that's joyful. That's all about joy. So prayer itself is like a miniature Shabbos. Every day we get a taste of Shabbos when we pray. Prayer itself is a time of joy. You're reconnecting, your soul is returning and reconnecting to its source. The prince or the princess is going back to the royal palace where it came from. When we're praying, we're immersed in prayer. When we're immersed in Torah, we are back in the king's palace. The soul journeyed from the king's palace into this world, into the physical, coarse, crass, materialistic world. Dark, dense world. When you study Torah, when you're, when you're immersed in prayer, you're going back to the palace. You're back home where you came from. A Jew doesn't study Torah in order to get to heaven. When we study Torah, we are in heaven, as we are right now. So that's joyful. You study Torah with joy. When you pray, you're joyful. You're reconnecting. You're returning home. But before prayer, the mission says, in order to be able to pray, first you have to have a broken heart. You have to humble yourself. Because that's human nature. 
no matter how accomplished we are, maybe especially someone who's very accomplished, and his life is all good, maybe he's even more dangerous. He needs this more than anyone else. Human nature is we become very self-congratulatory, we become very complacent, and we lose that edge. We lose that, if we don't have that humility, you're, not, you're no longer grounded, you're no longer connected, and you're on a very dangerous path. Ronald Reagan, one of the best speakers, said once said, he says he still has butterflies in his stomach. You know, he's really been speaking for decades, and the president, and, and worldwide audiences, and yet, if you lose that, those butterflies in your stomach, you just switch careers. You're, you're in the wrong business. The moment you become cocky and overconfident and overassured, you've lost it. You're dangerous. You become reckless. They say there are two pilots you should never fly with. The worst and the best. <laughs> the worst for obvious reasons, but the best is just as dangerous. He's overconfident and he's too cocky. And so when a person doesn't have a brokenheartedness, if you don't have that humbling experience, if you're not grounded, you will inevitably just veer off somewhere in the wrong direction. So the, the Mishnah says, before a person prays, even the accomplished Baal who's basically reached the level of the higher level of the he no longer has to deal with negativity. He's dealt with all his negativity. His life now is all good. And he's all joyful. He's immersed in Torah, and he's immersed in prayer, and it's all joyful, and it's all good. First, you have to humble yourself. You have to break your heart. Because nothing can grow. That's the starting point. The entranceway to spirituality, the door to spirituality is a broken heart. And people who have that quality of brokenness go very far spiritually. Their reach is very, very far. Because this gives them that drive and this gives them that, that hunger and that thirst to accomplish and to achieve. The Talmud says, beware, the sons of poor people will accomplish a lot more than the children of wealthy people. Like those who came to America came with nothing. And they worked hard. They have such a drive and such a hunger. The children don't have the same drive. They've never experienced poverty. They don't know what it means. So it's only when you have that humility and that humbleness, you have that powerful drive. And the same is true spiritually. It's only when a person has a broken heart. Like the Baltruva, who's superior than the Tzaddik. The one who grew up in the straight and the narrow, who grew up observant all his life. He doesn't have the same hunger. He doesn't have the same drive. He doesn't have the same appreciation. Because he never, he never experienced that. He was cocooned all his life. He grew up cocooned and sheltered. and His whole life was light and immersed in light and goodness and holiness and wholesomeness. But the Baltruva, who had that breakdown, who tasted the darkness, tasted that impoverishment, spiritual impoverishment, when he comes, he comes back, he comes back with a vengeance, with an intensity, with a power that catapults him much farther because he has such a hunger and such a thirst that the tzaddik can never even dream of. It was Torah mitzvah on a whole different level, a whole different dimension. So it's important 
every day to experience this. Before you pray, before you start your day, first you have to have a broken heart. When you do the plowing, now I can turn and become joyful and start praying and start connecting and coming home and start being active and positive and active. But first you have to plow the ground. Now, Alter Rebbe said in the last chapter that most of us don't have the ability to switch on and off. In the morning when you wake up, right before you start praying, do soul searching. Experience a broken heart. Okay, and the next minute, now I'm ready to pray and I'm dancing and I'm joyful, I'm ecstatic and I'm inspired. It's very hard for us to shift gears within a few minutes. Here we're broken hearted, the next thing we know it, we're, we're dancing with joy. So now the Rebbe advised that we should put, do it in two separate times. The night before, that's a time. The night is a time of intimacy. It's a time to do soul searching. The end of the day, do that, that's when you do your soul searching. That's when you break your heart. Break your heart. And then, when you wake up in the morning, now you can focus on the joy. So do it in two different times. And even if that's too much, because not everyone today has the zitz flesh and the capacity to do soul searching. It's a lost art, unfortunately. This Dalta Rebbe wrote 200 years ago. Imagine today. But even 200 years ago in the shtetl in Eastern Europe, he says it's a lost art, soul searching. Not everyone has the capacity to do soul searching every night. But once a week is a must. Thursday night before Shabbos, how can you experience Shabbat? How can you enjoy and really get into the Shabbat and be inspired by the Shabbat and feel the wholesome holiness of the Shabbat unless first you do a little soul searching on Thursday night? You finished your week, you concluded your week, I have to know exactly where I stand, break your heart a little, open yourself up, and then Shabbat comes, then you can really enjoy the Shabbat. Just like if unless you cook before the Shabbat, you can't enjoy Shabbos because you're not allowed to cook on Shabbos. All the preparations have to be done, must be done before. If you want to enjoy Shabbos, you better prepare before. Make sure to go to the grocery. Today you don't cook, okay, you buy out, but you have to make sure to go and buy and prepare and have, have everything ready. Then you can enjoy Shabbat. The same thing is spiritual. Everything in the physical is just a metaphor, a symptom of the spiritual. In order to enjoy Shabbat, you must prepare before Shabbos. So you have to do your soul searching on Thursday. That was chapter 10. Chapter 11 we learned. Now the Rebbe starts out and he says that there is a possibility. There is a possibility to experience the sadness, the brokenness of the heart, and to experience the joy simultaneously. The same person should simultaneously feel joyful, ecstatic, inspired, and at the same time feel brokenhearted. How is this possible? So it refers to what he said earlier in the first part of the Tanya, in chapter 34. There, Al-Tarebi says, he quotes the Zohar, that Rabbi Lazar, the son of the author of the Zohar, Shimon Bayechoi, his father, Abshim Bayechai, the author of the Zohar, was once expounding on the mystical secrets of the destruction of the temple. 
And when Abel Lazar, his son, heard these mystical insights and secrets, he started crying and he said, on one hand, I'm joyful because I've just heard revelations, mystical secrets and insights that nobody has ever heard before. But on the other hand, I'm crying because now I have a whole new appreciation for the tragedy of the destruction of the temple like never before. So on one hand, he was ecstatic of this revelation of godliness, of holiness, of mystical insights that no, no human being has ever heard before. On the other hand, now he felt acutely the pain of the destruction of the temple. So we see this concept that a person can cry and could laugh at the same time. It's a very Jewish concept. Jews have been doing this for thousands of years. Yeah. We're the greatest comedians on earth, and we, we cry more than anyone. And usually we do it together, you know, because it's really two sides of the same coin, crying, laughing, seeing the absurdity in life, seeing the... And you need both. So he said it's possible to do both at the same time. Why? Because I'm crying and I'm, I'm rejoicing for two, two different reasons. I am rejoicing because I have a piece of the divine essence inside of me. Due to no fault of my own, it's a gift Hashem gave us. I'm born to a Jewish mother and I'm a Jew. I have this piece of Hashem inside of me. I didn't choose it. Hashem chose it. We're not called the choosing people, we're called the chosen people. Hashem gave us a piece of Himself. He married us. A non-Jew is God's best friend, is our best friend. But God chose the Jew to be His bride. He married us. Hashem is intimate with us and He's given us a piece of His essence. So for that I'm joyful. Even for nothing else. Just for the fact that I'm a Jew. For that alone I should be dancing with joy. That I have this gift that we inherited from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah. Every one of us. Stop anyone anywhere in the world. Could they name their great-grandparent going back 800 years ago by first name? No. Stop any Jew in the world. They can name their great-grandparent by first name going back 3,800 years ago. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. It's a gift. We have this piece of divine essence. I'm joyful. On the other hand, we also have this ego, this natural soul. This body, this physical that's pulling us down. Force of gravity is pulling us downward. Self-destructive behaviors. and The fact that I can be tempted to act in a way that's untruthful and ungodly. That alone should break my heart. Shatters my heart. Animals are not tempted to violate God's wish. We, however, have temptations to do things that are completely self-destructive. That completely rebel against our Creator. Who's creating us and sustaining us as we speak at this very moment. And yet we have temptations and desires to do things that are totally rebellious, totally contrary to our essence, to our core. Because our being is godly. Our whole being is godly. We're nothing other than the godly energy that's constantly creating us. So for us to behave in a way that's not godly goes contrary to our very being and our very core and essence. And yet we have these temptations. Animals don't have these temptations. No other creature in the universe has these temptations. 
For that reason alone, man is the lowest of all the creatures. On one hand, we're even greater than the angels. We're a piece of the divine essence. But on the other hand, we're even lower than the worst animal. Right? Animals don't overeat and overdrink and not addicted. Animals don't blow themselves up, don't self-destruct. So we have this contradiction. That's why man is so interesting. There's no creature in the universe like man. We have this paradox. So I can cry for my situation, for, what, for this animal, ego, natural soul that's pulling me in one direction. But I can rejoice from the fact that I have a godly soul, a holy soul that's pulling me in the other direction, that's pulling me up. So I can cry and, la- and, and laugh at the same time. So the Rebbe says that although here there's a big difference we're discussing here and we're discussing what we discussed back there. The Rebbe explained. Back there we discussed someone who has no connection to any negativity. His life where he is at, na- at now is in a totally good place. He has no connection to sin. As a matter of fact, the idea of sinning is he finds repulsive. How can I sin? It's like putting your hand in the socket and electrocuting yourself. How can I go against my godly core and essence, which is godliness? How can I act in a way that's not Jewish, that goes against the Torah, that goes against the code of Jewish law? How can I can't do that? He's repulsed by that whole idea. He's tempted. He may be tempted to sin. That's not in our control. We can't control and we can't feel guilty about being tempted to do negative things. We can't control that. We can't change that about ourselves. But we could change is how we react. And the person, the Benini, the ideal person, which is our potential, all of us have this potential to reach this level, is a person who has decided that he's completely repulsed by the whole concept of sinning. It's not even a possibility. How can I sin? How can I go against the Jewish law? How can I go against the Torah? How can I act in a way that's not godly, in a way that's not wholesome? And therefore, all I can do is think wholesomely, speak wholesomely, and act wholesomely, 24-7, consistently. So this, that Jew that, we, that he described in the first part of the Tanya is a Jew who has no connection to any negativity. Therefore, it makes sense that that Jew can simultaneously laugh and rejoice and cry at the same time. Because it's coming from from two different centers. The center within me, that's the godly soul, it's located at the center of my being, that's what causes me to rejoice. The ego soul, the natural soul, which is pulling me the other direction, and the fact that that it's it's out of my control, that I have temptations that are completely self-destructive, that makes me cry. So I can cry and I can rejoice at the same time. But here in this part of the Tanya, in the third part of the Tanya, in the letter of the Shuvah, we're talking about someone who's dealing with negativity, who's trying to mend, who's trying to fix the negativity. He's not oblivious to the negative. The negativity exerts a negative influence on his soul, on his godly soul. So you can't tell such a person to rejoice and to cry at the same time. The the joy is incomplete. How can I rejoice when my godly soul is affected, has been affected by my ego soul? 
it's not like two, they're not separate. Unfortunately, and this is most of our experience, you know, we're one person and we're affected. Our godly soul is affected and dragged down by that negativity and by that negative behavior. So you can't tell the godly soul to rejoice, that joy is incomplete. Because the godly soul has been affected negatively by this past experience, by this negative behavior, or negative thinking, or negative speaking. And therefore, it's, it's a downer. You can't totally, completely rejoice. And if he will try to completely rejoice, he won't be able to achieve a full, complete brokenheartedness. So in that case, that's why the Alter Rebbe said in chapter 10 that the only answer is it has to be two separate times. You have to cry at night and rejoice in the morning. And even that may be a little too tough. So cry Thursday night and then rejoice in Shabbat and the rest of the week. But it's impossible to achieve simultaneously. For this Jew who's dealing with teshuvah, who's dealing with negativity, where the animal, ego, natural soul has had a negative effect on the godly soul and dragged it down, you can't honestly, genuinely say, yeah, rejoice, dance, and cry at the same time. <laughs> if I'm dancing, then I'm not crying. And if I'm crying and I have what to cry about, I can't dance wholeheartedly. It's not real. So that was chapter 10. Now the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 11 that in Teshuvah, like we started discussing, there's two levels of Teshuvah. There's the lower level of Teshuvah. The person who predominantly is trying to break through that iron curtain that closes our heart, that grips our heart, that doesn't allow us to feel, that doesn't allow our soul to stir. And the only way to break through that iron curtain is by a, with a broken heart. So a person who's predominantly engaged in the lower level of teshuvah, which is predominantly the bitterness and the brokenness of the heart and the soul-searching and the honest reckoning, and that person cannot achieve joy and crying at the same time. However, the person who predominantly is engaged in the higher level of teshuvah, yes, he's also engaged in mending his past and correcting his past and in dealing with negativity. He's not completely oblivious from that negative. He's dealing with, he's dealing with it. But he has reached the higher level of teshuvah. His path is through joy and through reconnecting and by plugging in. So that Jew, it is possible for him to achieve simultaneously to rejoice and to cry at the same time. Because predominantly he's involved in the joy. So even though he's still dealing with the negativity, but the way of him dealing with the negativity is predominantly through joy. So therefore, if the godly soul is so prevalent that you can sense that joy, and that's the overwhelming emotion, that's what, that's what you feel, and you're more into reconnecting and to coming home and the joyful part of the journey, then you can feel joy and you can cry at the same time. And especially if you add to that the fact the knowledge and the confidence that God is going to forgive me. That when you do do teshuvah, when you do take charge, and you do come back, that Hashem will forgive you. And that's a key, critical 
aspect of Teshuvah. That we have to believe that the moment we take a step forward and the moment we open ourselves up and the moment we try to change and to improve, God will instantly forgive us. And that alone will enhance the joy. So not only isn't the brokenheartedness and the joy a contradiction, but the brokenheartedness actually enhances the joy and guarantees the joy. Because when you're so brokenhearted and you're able to transform the negative to positive, because that's the difference in the lower level of teshuvah and the, and the higher level of teshuvah. When a person is on the lower level of teshuvah, at best, all you can accomplish is you can neutralize the negativity. But you can't transform the negative. When we behave a certain way, that act becomes part of our psyche. It doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. You can't pretend that I didn't do it. You did it. You can't pretend I didn't think it. I thought it. And you can't pretend you didn't say it. You said it. And you created a negative energy. And that negative energy acts as a drag. It drags us down. But when you do teshuva, you sever that connection to the negativity and you neutralize it. So it no longer schleps you down. You haven't transformed it. The higher level of teshuva, however, is much more profound, is much deeper. The higher level of teshuva allows us to reach into our past and to transform the negative into positive. That's the miracle of teshuva. You can literally change your past. No, you can't change what happened. You can't pretend that what happened didn't happen. But you can transform it that now it becomes a positive, as if it was a positive experience. And instead of being a drag that drags you down, now it becomes something that uplifts you and boosts you and propels you upwards. That's the power of teshuva, of the higher level of teshuva. You can literally change your past, reach into your past, and transform that negative experience into a positive experience. So when this Jew realizes that by having a broken heart and by doing teshuv, I can transform the negative into positive, then that causes me to be joyful. But it's not, it's not a sad experience. It's a positive experience. And it's a joyful experience. Knowing that God is surely going to forgive me. That alone gives me joy. That I'll be back. I'll be back in God's good, good graces. Our relationship could be mended. Our relationship could be restored. We could reconnect. We could recreate that trust, that bond, that intimacy, that closeness. Not only could we reconcile, we can actually come back even deeper and stronger. Our relationship. And the negativity is transformed into positive. So that gives me reason to be joyful. So I can cry and I can be joyful at the same time. And not only isn't it a contradiction, but one leads to the other. The crying is what guarantees me that God will forgive me, so it makes me more joyful. And it's the crying that makes, transforms the negative into positive, which makes me very joyful. I can turn around all that negativity and turn it around into something positive. That, that creates tremendous joy. Okay, so this is where we left off. The worshiper offers supplication such as the above, without the faintest vestige of doubt. In all our prayers, the different prayers that he quoted earlier from Psalms, that we're praying to Hashem that He should cleanse us, <coughs> He should purify us, 
erase all my sins. And we have no doubt, not even a shred of a doubt, that God will answer our prayers. That as a result of our prayer, for that alone, as a result of our prayer and our heartfelt prayer, we're confident that Hashem will respond to our prayer and will surely cleanse us and wash away the negativity. For this reason, every Shmona Esrei, the moment we plead, pardon us, we conclude, blessed are you, O God, gracious one who pardons abundantly. Now we are forbidden to recite a blessing of doubtful obligation for fear that it be pronounced in vain. Okay. Okay. Huh? Yeah. Okay. So it means like this. In every Shmonesri, in the weekday, in the highlight of the prayer, the climax of the prayer, the, the silent prayer, we ask Hashem for forgiveness. First we have the introductory blessings, the three blessings. Then we ask God for wisdom. And then we ask God to return us to tshuva. Right? And then we ask God for forgiveness. So in the sixth prayer, we ask, sixth blessing, we ask God for forgiveness. And we say, blessed are you God who forgives us and who pardons abundantly. Now the question is, are we, how can we be so confident that God forgives us? Yes. Only because we ask for forgiveness. We say, God, please forgive me. And then we conclude, blessed are you, God, who forgives us and, and, is, and gives us abundant forgiveness. How could you make such a blessing? We know that if you're in doubt, if you're in doubt, if you're obligated to make a blessing, so A, you don't have to make a blessing because blessings are only rabbinic. And whenever you're in doubt, if it's a biblical commandment and you're in doubt, you have to be strict. You have to fulfill the biblical commandment. If it's a rabbinic commandment and you're in doubt, you can be lenient and you don't have to fulfill it. Blessings are rabbinic. So if you're in doubt, you don't have to make a blessing. But then there's something even more than that. There's a biblical aspect involved. Because if you're not allowed to make a blessing, if you're not certain that you're allowed to make a blessing, then you're not allowed to make a blessing. Because there's a biblical prohibition against mentioning God's name in vain. God's name is sacred. That's so, a very underground, yes, the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not, yeah, yeah. we don't say it openly, but, but God's name in general is treated with holiness. You can't just say God's name in vain. So if you're in doubt, if you're allowed to make a blessing, then you're, then you're not allowed to make a blessing. Because if you're making a blessing and you don't need to make a blessing, then you're mentioning God's name in vain. And then you're violating a biblical prohibition. So then you would not be allowed to make a blessing. So if there was any doubt about the fact that God is forgiving and God forgives us and could forgive us just for the mere fact that I asked God for forgiveness and immediately He'll forgive us, if we had any doubt, how could we even make this blessing? Blessed are you God who forgives. Really? Did you ask God if He's forgiving? Maybe He's not in the forgiving mood today. Maybe you, He's not going to forgive. I mean, what? How are we so, so certain? And if you're not certain, then you're not allowed to make this blessing. It's a blessing in vain. You're mentioning God's name in vain. So the fact that every one of us makes this blessing three times a day, for certain, with certainty, we say with certainty, blessed are you, God, who's, who's going to forgive us. Why is He going to forgive us? Because I just asked you to forgive me. 
For that alone, I'm certain, just based on that, I'm for certain that you're going to forgive us. I'm more certain of the outcome of this blessing than we were of the, of the elections. <laughs> but because this is something I know for certain. It's not even a doubt. It's not even a question. And the moment that I say that I ask God for forgiveness, I am positive and certain that God will instantly forgive me. Or at least it's a possibility. Just based on my asking. I ask in the same blessing and then I conclude immediately, thank you God for forgiving me. Blessed are you God for forgiving me. Okay, that was quick. <laughs> and, and nothing else happened. It doesn't say you have to do the A, B, and C, and D, and E, and F, and G to get that forgiveness. Nothing happened. All that happened is I said, God, please forgive me. And boom, within a second, thank you God for forgiving me. Just like that. Every one of us. Three times a day. If we weren't certain, you would not, we would not be allowed to make a blessing. So be a blessing in vain. Mentioning God's name in vain. So what do we see from that? Thus, were, were there even the slightest doubt as to whether God forgave the sinner, we would never have been commanded to recite the above blessing. But there is no doubt here whatsoever. If we have asked, pardon us, forgive us. Okay, so this begs the question. After the three introductory blessings, we bless God, ask God for wisdom. Then we ask God for teshuva. Forgiveness. Teshuva, repentance. Then the, the, the sixth blessing, we ask God for forgiveness. Now, the question is, we know that the reason we're in exile is because of our sins, we were exiled. There's a cause and there's an effect. What's the cause? Why are we in exile? Why is the temple destroyed? Why are the Jewish people exiled and dispersed? Why is the world in exile? Because we sin. What's the antidote? Remove the cause, and automatically you remove the, the, the effect. If the Jewish people repent, and we stop sinning, Mashiach will be here in one second. Because we remove the cause of our exile. Keep the Shabbat Right? If, you, if you remove the cause of the exile, if we stop sinning, then we'll be immediately redeemed. So the question is, if we, God had forgiven us, boom, just like that, we ask God for forgiveness and He's forgiven us, our sins are forgiven. So if our sins are forgiven, then Mashiach should come. Right away. We have a clean slate, all our sins are forgiven. We ask forgiveness, and God had forgiven us. Why, why, didn't, why doesn't Mashiach come right away? Furthermore, were we not to repeat our transgressions, it would be immediately redeemed. You're right. If we ask for forgiveness, and we obtain forgiveness, and we would stay, remain with a clean slate, the problem is, between one prayer and the next, <laughs> we revert back. It doesn't last. It doesn't have staying power. Were we to keep it up, to do one prayer and the next, at least try the Mincha Mairet, then, then you're right. So then, then we, we would be redeemed right away. As a matter of fact, we make the next blessing immediately after the blessing for forgiveness. What's the next blessing? In accordance with the blessing, and recite immediately after the blessed are you, O God, who redeems Israel. Even though there's an argument, Rashi says that the blessing, the request for redemption, 
the seventh blessing, which is a request for redemption, is talking about a personal redemption. Not talking about Mashiach, universal redemption. It's only talking about a personal redemption. You know, when we need redemptions from our personal situations, when we're trapped, when we're in our own personal exile, and we need, we need a redemption, we're checkmated and we need redemption. Um, but others say no, that this is referring to the general redemption. We bless God who redeems Israel, and through Israel the entire world, all seven billion people. But even if this refers to a private redemption, personal redemption, every personal redemption is a reflection of the whole redemption. If we are personally redeemed, every one of us is a microcosm of the whole, whole universe. So if one person achieves redemption, it's a taste of, of the global universal redemption. So if one person achieves redemption, it can influence and impact the whole world. So it's true. If, had we continued on this path, had we not messed up after the forgiveness, if we would have continued, you're right. The next moment we bless, blessed are you, God, who redeems the Jewish people. Now, the act of redemption doesn't happen in a second. There's a process of redemption. It says three days before Mashiach comes, Elijah the prophet will blow the shofar and announce his coming, herald is coming. So there's a process of redemption. So it is possible that immediately after we say the sixth blessing, we ask God for forgiveness. And we bless God for forgiving us because God immediately forgives us. And if the entire Jewish people are praying and davening, then God forgives all of us. And the next moment we say, blessed are you, God, who redeems us. So yes, maybe the redemption process begins right away. But it takes a while. It takes a while. It doesn't happen in a split second. And then, unfortunately, we go back and we revert back and we start sinning again. So <laughs> it's put on hold again. This is going back and forth. Redemption. Hashem wants to bring the redemption. He forgives us. Okay, so let's get going. Let's get moving. And then we revert right back. So we retard the growth of the redemption process. We don't let it, we don't let it continue. So you're right. If we were able to keep it up for a day or two or three, no question Mashiach would come. But we can't get our act together. We can't keep it up. You know, so that's the problem. Question, so after the Shimon right? so we're on such a high level say so it's it's um, like the opposite we're already uh, right the just question was if as we discussed earlier as we learned earlier that the time for crying and brokenheartedness and soul searching and is before the prayer in order, before you even get to the prayer, before you even get to the first base, first you have to break your heart, you have to open yourself up, you have to create a thirst, a hunger, a yearning, a desire, uh, and then you can start praying and, and get into the joyful part of prayer, the connecting with Hashem. So why suddenly, A, after the prayer, we say the confession, and in the middle of the highlight, the climax of prayer, the Shemon Esrei, we go back to sinning. Oh, please God, we've sinned. Forgive me. Teshuvah. We took care of all of that. 
before the prayer, or the night before, or on Thursday night. Here, I'm in middle of praying, I'm in middle of communing with God, I'm becoming intimate with God. It's, it's my rendezvous with Hashem, it's, it's a reunion, I'm back in the king's palace, I'm back in the royal palace. I'm connecting, why, why are you bringing up now, why are you bringing up all this negativity? Suddenly asking for forgiveness and feeling brokenhearted and starting to cry. You have to be sincere. You're standing before Hashem. You're talking before Hashem. Hashem knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're feeling. You can't stand before Hashem and play games. This is as serious as it gets. You have to be as genuine as it gets. So all of a sudden, in the middle of the Shemun after all this joy, all of a sudden you're crying and you're, 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 you're beating yourself up. Your chest. Your chest beating. We sin. And we ask Hashem for forgiveness. Why all of a sudden now? We took care of it. We took care of business already before prayer. And the answer is that it's precisely when you climb the mountain and you start climbing spiritually that shortcomings that you didn't notice before, now suddenly they show up very starkly. It's like a person is wearing a black suit. If you have a ketchup stain, you won't even notice. Wearing a tuxedo, a black tuxedo. Someone's wearing a white silk suit, white silk dress. The smallest will show up. Smallest stain will show up. So before you prayed, yes, you were brokenhearted. But you were dealing with the course, the crash, the obvious negativity. But as you refine yourself, as you become more refined, suddenly things start bothering you. Things that you didn't even notice before. Things that you didn't even pay attention to before. Suddenly start interfering. And it starts bothering you. It's like the greater the light. If it's very dim, it's very dark, you don't see much. All you see are the obvious things. So when you're doing some soul searching for the first time and you're shining a light into your soul, Mm -hmm. it's still dim. So all I notice are the obvious things, the real bad stuff. But as you get closer to the light and you're climbing and and suddenly you reach Monastery, this brilliant shining light, suddenly every little wart stands out. Every little... And it bothers you. And it disturbs you. And, And you lose... You become restless. And it doesn't, it doesn't allow you to, to come to yourself. And therefore you start crying and you start confessing. And you ask Hashem for forgiveness. So it's precisely because you're on such a high level that it causes, it breaks your heart. The small things suddenly become big and it breaks your heart. How could I do this? How could I have thought this? How could I have said this? Maybe it was something subtle. There's certain obvious things. Don't lie. Okay, if you lie, that's obvious. But then there's certain subtle things. Obvious things. Don't slander. What if it was a little subtle? It wasn't so obvious. You know, it's gray. But you know that it wasn't the right thing to do. Before davening, that doesn't bother you. You're dealing with the obvious stuff. But when you reach such a high level, suddenly the small things start bothering and bothering you a great deal and it breaks your heart and you start crying and asking Hashem for forgiveness and the moment you ask Hashem for forgiveness Hashem will surely forgive you 
the question that he's going to ask now is, why are we praising Hashem? Blessed are you, God, who's forgiving. Why is that such a great praise? Why does that make God so praiseworthy? Even human beings have to forgive each other. That's just the Jewish way. The sign of a Jew is, the nature of a Jew is, we're forgiving. We're forgiving. We're kind people. That's why most Jews are liberals. They're just the kind people. So they gravitate towards, just, that's just our nature. We can't help it. We're bashful, we're compassionate, we're kind. Jews are disproportionately represented in all of the charities. It's just our nature. We're kind people. And we're forgiving people. And a person who's hard-hearted, who's unforgiving, it's questionable whether he's Jewish. Because it's just not the Jewish way. And that's reflected in Jewish law. That a Jew, you can't be cruel. You have to be kind-hearted. If someone asks you for forgiveness, obviously if they mean it, if they ask you perfunctorily, because it says in the Code of Jewish Law you should ask for forgiveness. You know, before Yom Kippur it says Jews ask each other for forgiveness. Yes. Because God could only forgive the sins between man and God. God can't forgive the sins between man and man. When you sin towards your fellow man, you've, you're, it's a double sin. A, you've sinned against God. It says in the Torah you should, you're not allowed to um, harm another person. But also you've sinned against the other person. So God could forgive you, but until you obtain forgiveness from the other person that you've hurt or harmed or stolen from, if you don't return the money, and even if you return the money, if you don't ask them for forgiveness, for causing them this pain and aggravation, then God can't forgive you. Yom Kippur can't forgive you. You can cry from today till tomorrow. You can bow down and reflect, and it doesn't, won't, won't help you. You need that person to forgive you. So before Yom Kippur is the custom, everyone asks each other for forgiveness. So there was a Jew who would always make the other person's life miserable. But before Yom Kippur, he became religious and he would always ask him for forgiveness. You know, it was getting ridiculous because the day after Yom Kippur, it was as if nothing happened and he would start up again. So the next, the next Yom Kippur, before he asked him forgiveness, he said, listen, I forgive you in the same spirit like you asked me. You don't mean a word you say. So I, I forgive you in the same spirit. It's, 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 it, this is not for real. Forgiveness is not, it's not a mechanical event. It's not a formula. Ask for forgiveness and the other person forgives you. If you hurt another person, you hurt their feeling, forgiveness means that the person really forgives you. He, he's not angry at you anymore. In his heart, he's not angry anymore. In his heart, he truly forgives you. And until you obtain that forgiveness, it doesn't mean anything. It's not a formula. It's for real. So it says when a person asks forgiveness, and you see that he means it, that he's sincere, you're not allowed to be cruel. You have to forgive. And the maximum, the halacha says, what's the maximum a person has to ask for forgiveness? Three times. If you ask him three times and he refuses, it's no longer your responsibility. Listen, I ask him, and it, but it has to be for real. I'm genuine, I'm for real, I'm brokenhearted, I'm asking him, I'm pleading him, please. 
if the other person is still so hard-hearted and he refuses to forgive me, there's nothing more I can do. Unless if it's your teacher. If it's your teacher, then ask till the last day of his life. You have to continue to ask. But anyone else, you have three times. And the Talmud says that even, even if the other person really hurt you, really, really hurt you. For example, he chopped off your arm. Do you imagine? Even that person, if he asks forgiveness, you have to forgive. Can you imagine? That's how strong the Jewish nature of forgiveness is, of kindness, of compassion. That's our nature. We can't bear a grudge forever. We can't be angry forever. We can't. Especially if we know that ultimately everything that happens in this world comes from God. And no human being has any power of another human being. We don't have freedom of choice to harm another person. We can't lay a pinky in another person unless it was decreed in heaven that we sh- something should happen to us. So, uh, you know, if a Jew, just by nature, we just can't bear grudges forever. We just can't be hard-hearted. That's just the sign that a person is Jewish. You just have a softness, a, a compassion, a rachmanus. Mercy, rachmanus. Rachmanus in Hebrew, compassion, mercy, kindness, goodness. So the question is, what's the big deal? What are, what are we saying that God forgives? What's the big deal? I mean, every one of us has to forgive. Even by human standard, this uh, certainty of pardon is legitimate for one must forgive as soon as he asks for pardon. He must not cruelly withhold his forgiveness, even if one were to cut off his head. As we find in Gemara at the end of chapter 8 of uh, Baba Hamad. So too, if one has asked his fellow for forgiveness three times and it has been rebuffed, he need not apologize first. Right, because it, it, we, it, a Jew cannot reject this request. You ask three times, even if he did the worst thing to you. If he asks three times, you have to forgive. But and after three times, you're no longer responsible. What? But he's got to ask. Oh, you got to ask and you got to mean it. You have to be sincere. If you see it's phony, then no, then you don't have to forgive. You know, it's, this is a serious thing. But if you see that he's contrite and you see that he's brokenhearted and you see that he's genuinely broken and he genuinely means it, then, then you can't be cruel. You have to forgive. Continue. When King David asked uh, Gibeonites to forgive King Saul, who had killed uh, their people and they refused to do so, David decreed that they should not enter the congregation of God, i.e. they would never be allowed to convert and thereby join the Jewish people who are merciful. As we have learned in, in Yomamot, what happened was the Givainim the Givainim were a nation when the Jewish people conquered the land of Canaan 3,300 years ago when they conquered the land of Canaan um, one of the seven nations the Givainim were terrified of the Jews so what did they do? they created a subterfuge a trick they actually two nations one nation left picked themselves up and left they just, they just evacuated on their own. They just left the land. They, they didn't want to get into a fight with the Jews. And one of them, the Givoinim, 
they pretended that they are coming from a long distance, that they are a nation, they, they, they literally uh, took old clothes and they brought stale bread and they wore rags. It appears as if they, they trekked from hundreds of miles away, even though they were neighbors. And they pretended that we heard of all the great miracles that happened to the Jewish people and we want to make a treaty with you. Please, you know, don't kill us, make a treaty with you. And Joshua immediately embraced them and made a treaty with them. And then right afterwards they found out that they were tricked. They were from the, from the Canaanites. They were from the seven nations. And they tricked them. Instead of being honest who they were, they came and they tricked. And nevertheless, Joshua accepted them. And he rendered them that they should be the ones who um, would service the tabernacle, the temple, the Mishkan in Israel. They were the water carriers. They chopped the wood. They were the water carriers. They were the ones who took care of the temple. Um, because they were, they were converts. They were not really part of the Jewish people. But they were converts. And they, this was their service. They serviced the Jewish people by servicing in the temple. Now, fast forward a few hundred years. The first Jewish king, King Shaul, was very jealous of his son-in-law, King David. And King David ran for his life. His father-in-law tried to kill him. What? King Shaul tried to kill King David. He ran for his life. And he ran and he hid in the tabernacle. King David ran in the tabernacle. The high priest welcomed the king's son-in-law. He didn't know... The tabernacle wasn't in the capital. It was in Noiv, in Nov. And it was, it was a distant town. So he didn't know what was going on, the machinations that was going on in the royal palace, that the king was trying to kill King David. He saw this, the son-in-law, King son-in-law. He welcomes with open arms. What can I do to help you? He was a little surprised that he didn't come with an entourage. But he, he told him, King David made up some story, well, I'm running and I have, to, I have to go here and I'm here on a quiet mission, so I'm here alone. He took him in, he fed him, and he gave him a spear from the tabernacle and he sent him on his way. Now it happens to be that King Shaul's advisor, who was the head of the Jewish Supreme Court, happened to be there by the tabernacle at that time. And he saw David there. He goes back to the palace and he tattled on the high priest he says the priests are rebelling against you they gave refuge to your enemy the arch enemy to your son-in-law to king david Shaul heard this he summons all the priests i think there were 86 priests he says how dare you give refuge to my arch enemy who's rebelling who's you acted treasonously against the king so he ordered the soldiers to kill the priests no soldier wanted to touch the world. They refused the king's order. He says, are you kidding? We're going to raise our hands against the high priest, against the priest? God's priest? Absolutely not. So Shaul told his head advisor, the one who tattled in the first place, he says, you, you tattle, you kill them. And he killed them. 86 of them. All the priests were killed. There was only one little baby priest that was smuggled away. And all the priests, the survivors, came from this priest that was 
Now what happened was, as a result of this, the tabernacle came to an end. Because all the priests were killed. The Givainim lost their source of livelihood. This was their livelihood. They took care of the tabernacle. Now all the priests were dead. They lost their livelihood. And they were so angry at Troll. They were burning at burning a troll. He destroyed our livelihood. He destroyed our living. And they wouldn't forgive him. They refused to forgive him. Fast forward. King Shoal dies in war and battle with his son. And now King David is king. David is king. But there was a drought. Terrible drought in Israel. A plague. This plague. And he asked, why is there a plague? He asked heaven, why is there a plague? And heaven says, because the Givainim are angry. The Givainim are angry at King Shaul. Until you appease the Givainim, these converts, this plague will continue. This drought, the plague will continue. King, Dov, uh, King David interviews these Givainim, and they say, the only thing that will appease us we want you to give us, like, I think it was like seven of the descendants of King Shaul, and we want to kill them and hang them. We want to string them and hang them. That will appease us. Nothing less will appease us. King David tried to plead with them. I'll give you money, I'll give you whatever you want. This is so cruel. He said, no. The only thing that will appease us is we have to see his descendants hang. Just like he destroyed us, he destroyed our livelihood, he destroyed our community, we want revenge. We want his descendants hanging. And he was told from heaven to agree, and he agreed. At that moment, King David decreed that these converts are not Jewish. They can't be Jewish. Because a Jew is merciful and a Jew is compassionate. They displayed such cruelty, such that they couldn't forgive. This was years later. They just couldn't forgive and they were burning. And until we see them hanging and dead, we will never forgive. This is not the Jewish way. So from that time on, King David decreed they are no longer allowed to marry a Jew and a Jew is no longer allowed to marry them. He ostracized them from the Jewish community because they, they displayed such characteristic traits that do not coincide with the Jewish character. Jewish character is that we are kind and compassionate. And if you meet someone who's not kind and compassionate, and merciful, and is hard-hearted to an extreme, you have to wonder if he's really Jewish. The question is, the question is, it's a very puzzling story because when the Torah says that you have to forgive, when do you have to forgive? It's only on condition if the person who hurt you is begging for your forgiveness. In this case, who is asking for forgiveness? David. Who hurt them? Shaul. Shaul never asked them for the forgiveness. Shaul died without asking for their forgiveness. So why should they forgive? Shaul is the one who hurt us. If Shaul is the one who asked for forgiveness and they didn't forgive, then you can call them cruel and evil and horrible and everything. The person who sinned towards us, he never asked our forgiveness. A stranger is asking for forgiveness. If someone hurts someone else and a stranger asks, please forgive him. You're not obligated to forgive. He has to ask me for forgiveness. It's only when he comes begging, 
crawling and begging in his knees and contrite and broken hearted I'm so sorry what I did I can't believe what I, I did to you I'm so sorry I can't take it back but please forgive me I regret it I'll never do it again please have mercy be kind forgive me if Shaul would beg for their forgiveness then they would have an obligation to forgive but why would they? Why are they giving? Why would they be obligated to forgive if Shaul never asked them for forgiveness? Not Shaul, not any of his descendants. David is asking for forgiveness. David, who are you? You don't belong here. You're not part of this picture. So what? What? What's wrong with the giving? Why did they do anything wrong? That's why the Alter Rebbe says, if you look carefully, every word, every letter of the Alter Rebbe of the Tanya, so precise. It's so thoughtful and premeditated. Alter Rebbe says, look in the second paragraph on the bottom, page 1109. When King David asked the Gibbonites, up until this point in the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe mentioned David many times. He doesn't mention King David. We all know that David was King David. He mentioned David, David. Why over here does he say King David? Why is it important for us to remind us that David was a king? Because he's explaining to us what was the sin of the Givainim for not forgiving. Because the crime against the Givainim was a national crime. It wasn't Shaul as an individual. It was King Shaul as the king and the leader of the Jewish people. So it was the national crime. The Jewish people did, had committed a crime against the Givainim, destroyed their livelihood. So therefore, King David had a right to ask for the forgiveness. He wasn't asking for himself as a person. Yes, he personally was not involved. But the, as a king, as a representative of the entire Jewish people, as a national representative embodying the national Kal Yisrael, the Jewish Kol, he has a right to ask for the forgiveness and they should have forgiven. Because they weren't just angry at King Shaul as an individual, they were angry at King Shaul. As the king, as the leader of the Jewish people, how could the Jewish people do this stuff? The collective whole. He's the heart of the Jewish people. The king is the heart of the Jewish people. How could he do this stuff? And that's why King David is a, is, had a right to ask for forgiveness, and they should have forgiven. To be continued. <laughs> this class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.